KKIVA at 93.7 FM. I'm Eddie Aragon, The Rocket Talk, 6 o'clock uh, here. An interview with the uh, former police chief of the Albuquerque Police Department, Chief Michael Geyer, here in studio live. And uh, Chief Geyer, good afternoon. How are you? I'm doing fine. Thanks for having me here today, Eddie. Quite the uh, spat going back and forth on the back page of the Albuquerque Journal uh, yesterday. So we invited you here and had an opportunity to kind of uh, go over some of these things. And, you know, first and before, uh, you know, I talk a lot about uh, the homicides and uh, the number of murders here in Albuquerque. And, of course, you know, when people are unemployed, we have one of the highest unemployment rates uh, anywhere in the country. People have more time. Uh, plus, we have a uh, an unusually large number of people who are subsidized uh, by the government on SNAP benefits, etc. But I kind of want to just kind of delve right into it. And um, our homicide rate was a record high uh, last year. What do you attribute that to, or what did you, when you were chief of the police, attribute that to? Well, there there are several reasons for that. I mean, you know, sometimes there's things you can't control in people's upbringing that brings somebody to the capability to take another human's life. And it does, unlike property crimes where we can address patterns, there is no pattern to some of this. One of the most uh, prevented, preventable uh, homicides is those with domestic violence, and some of the programs over the years that have been implemented can reduce the chance of that occurring before the 11th hour uh, if we have those signals in advance. Uh, obviously, the advent of drugs like methamphetamine fuels some of that uh, passion to commit crimes, drug drug involvement, the nexus to drug crimes, um, as well as just pure pure human evil in some cases. So, I mean, it's there's so many different reasons, but I think th- the biggest problem in Albuquerque is the presence, extreme presence of guns and the, the presence of guns in the state of New Mexico. Uh, I think not only do responsible citizens that sometimes don't take care of the guns, they get stolen and they become in the hands of uh, individuals that, again, can use them for their purposes or you know, recklessly use them in other purposes like drive-bys or, or road rage incidents. And you put that all together and, and you know, gun violence is, is at the heart of that. And I think guns is probably the, the biggest driving cr- uh, factor as well as the individuals that are, have the propensity for violence in their background. Well, one of the things that was noted is there was a higher uh, record, uh, higher number of uh, gunshots last year, gun-related uh, injuries uh, uh, this year, excuse me, than last year, people with more time on their hands. But uh, some interesting technology just came out, but you noted already the presence of drugs, uh, methamphetamine, as you, you said, the domestic violence early there. We're on a record pace this year due to the uh, COVID lockdown. I'd like to go and uh, delve right into dealing with uh, what you isolated there as guns. And there was some new technology introduced by the Albuquerque Police Department. Uh, you've only been gone uh, from there less than two weeks, and uh, they're introducing new technology. Were you involved with that? Can you tell me a little about uh, this technology at all? Oh, absolutely. Um, around middle of 2018, early uh, going into or 2018, 2019, um, we were researching different methods of approaches to reducing violent crimes. Uh, we're members of the major city chiefs association, so we have a lot of the documentation and interaction with, with members of that and studies that have been done and research programs uh, outlining some of the efforts that have been done across the country. And one of the unique ones I saw is uh, I saw it being used in my home city of Chicago was the Shot Spotter program. Uh, okay. It, it was also used in Milwaukee, and I had... Uh, had heard the chief of Milwaukee give a presentation on that as far as the effectiveness in their community. So I sought out different shot spotting uh, devices. Uh, there was different companies 
But we found the one called ShotSpotter, which had the most seemed to seemingly the most reliability. They were used by major cities with with success, and not just in detecting the shots uh, that were heard, but also the analytics that went with it in terms of determining pattern analysis, um, even the types of weapons used, the, the number of shots fired, but pinpointing the location to a specific, almost like a within a 50 meter radius, and that that's pretty uh, amazing. So this goes back uh, two two and a half years, and you had implemented it on July 17th. Is that correct? Uh, that's the first uh, day. That was your go live date. Yeah, it, we had launched it. It took about a year of you know obviously trying to arrange for funding and working with the company. To, yeah, tell me about the funding portion. When did that start, and how did you go about that? Well, it's it, it being the uh, the company, we tried to get it as a sole source because obviously they had uh, more customer service for a longer period of time. They had been in, in production for many years and had advanced their product. So we, we knew it was an expensive venture and our budget was limited. And obviously it's hard to get that funding, but with the availability of state legislation and other type of measures that we could get, we did seek that out and were approved for that. Um, did you have to lobby for that personally as the police chief of the Albuquerque Police Department to get that here in Albuquerque? I didn't, but our our lobbyists and our representatives from the department and the city um, did that in, in Santa Fe Forest. That's good. One point two million dollars, and that this uh, shot spotting, and this was approved in the twenty nineteen legislative uh, uh, session. And uh, tell, the technology is uh, basically a, a acoustic device that scans for reverberations that match those of the gunshots out there. Yeah, that's correct. There's we picked three locations where we had high high incidents of gun violence. One of the problems with uh, reporting gunshots is tw- only 20% of the people will report that uh, for different reasons. Some people are just so used to it. Other people just don't want to get involved. Other people don't really know where those shots are coming from, whereas this particular system w- increased our ability to identify those shots. Because we also have other systems, such as Nivens, which is identifies uh, gun violence by the casings and can uh, relate that to the offenders that are carrying guns or the guns that we recovered. So it's important that we get to those scenes as quick as possible, as well as do the aftermath, the recovery of any of those casings, and the interviews with uh, neighbors and, and possible witnesses that, again, identify offenders in these cases. The system is such that it goes through a monitoring system. Um, the call is then produced and generated to the officers immediately, either on their cell phone or their, their um, car, in-car computers, in which they can get it in real time. Uh, typically, uh, you called in a gun uh, Gunshots, it may take hours for a police officer to respond just because it's not was listed as a low right. priority call. Yeah, and that's kind of one of the things I've reported several times. But now that we have this shot spotter, and thank you for getting this on behalf of the Albuquerque uh, Police Department, lobbying uh, pretty hard to get it and uh, getting the funding. And uh, this is uh, something that you uh, drummed up through your work with the Milwaukee uh, Police Chief uh, as well as uh, Chicago. So I'm glad that we have uh, this technology here because... I think we're on record pace yet again for another unbelievable homicide rate as the economy is depressed and uh, people have uh, ample time on their hands and we still have the same issues. This was just uh, implemented July 17th. I think uh, hopefully this will start to turn it around for our city and our children. Yes, I mean, it's it's in the prime areas now, but we hope to expand this to other areas. The shots aren't just limited to three area commands. Um, so we hope that with that expansion, we'll be able to do a city-wide venture that will reduce homicides um, just by early detection and ap- obviously the apprehension of people that are shooting those those weapons.
So it was originally reported that you resigned at your position, uh, Chief Geyer, and uh, it didn't sit well with me because it didn't seem like that that was happening. And then, uh, you know, the spat has uh, increased and continued, and it's been a very political year. Black Lives Matter uh, has been a, a huge uh, part of that. A lot of people uh, sort of rising up. We had uh, Mayor Keller go to the uh, Institute for Justice and Peace on the very day that there was riots uh, going on downstairs, and he was doing his uh, I Can't Breathe speech uh, at that Center for Justice and, and Peace. And, you know, we've seen a number of police chiefs uh, decide to go ahead and resign uh, or uh, be removed uh, from their post. An unbelievable number, in fact, of the Association of Chiefs of Police, uh, 69 uh, associated with them. 18 of the 69 have resigned and uh, across the country. We're uh, well over 40 police chiefs uh, and we remove. It's a very uh, a political. Uh, it's a very political climate uh, for police chiefs, especially in these uh, blue Democrat-run cities. Uh, Chief Geyer. Yes, um, the major city chiefs associations addressed that. Um, we obviously couldn't hold a lot of in-person meetings, but we did a lot of telephone conferences uh, over the COVID period, the peak of COVID, and that seemed to be a common theme. Um, cities were also seeing increases in, in crimes that like nothing before, especially violent crimes like shootings with injuries and homicides, um, had gone up dramatically. And, and we kind of fit that same pattern as the, many of the major cities. Um, I provided that information to the mayor's office, and it was released to the public. Um, we saw from talking to some of the chiefs, I was actually chosen as a speaker on one of those calls to talk about the situation in, in Albuquerque. But a lot of it had to do with, um, obviously, the, the incidents of, post-George Floyd um, and the, the protests and the reactions um, from people trying to defund the police or find fault with the police for a lot of these uh, shootings involving police officers and, and members of the African-American community. Um, fortunately, we had no such incident in Albuquerque, but we saw well over 30, 35 type of events of that nature. Mm -hmm. uh, wow, that's, that's considerable. Yeah. For such a small portion of the population, 2.4% of the Albuquerque population. Exactly. And we, we handled, for the majority, most of those right. There were a couple incidents that we learned the hard way and or were, you know, direction was, weren't fouled uh, according to the, the plans, and we kind of went astray. But for the most part, we did really well with that, and I'm proud of the officers that spent a lot of their time from the emergency response teams and the supervisors in those units that kept the city under control. Now, I think it's become pretty clear that uh, you were forced out of your position, and there was a lot of talk about this, uh, especially by the uh, the five uh, guys who wrote uh, supporting that uh, you did not support them, but they sort of united together. Before we get to that, I just want to put this against the backdrop, uh, Chief Geyer, of the remarkable amount of political pressure and budget cuts that have made this job really not appealing. And a lot of experienced police officers uh, uh, aren't even wanting to go. In fact, there's a big defund the police uh, movement that is uh, certainly out there. Uh, one such uh, a person, a headhunter, was trying to call for a woman by the name of Lashina Stair, second in command of the Detroit Police Department, asked if she was interested in potentially becoming the chief of Louisville Metro Police Department. Her answer was absolutely not. Uh, I don't know that there's a worse time for our city to have removed you from office, to have fired you, and then to try to pick up because uh, all we have is an interim uh, police chief, and you've got more than 47 years on the job. Yeah, that, that's definitely a problem. For the national search, is, 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 that was noted in an article as well this past Sunday, um, 
it's going to be difficult to have anybody be attracted to the city of Albuquerque. And I think it's a bad time because uh, because of that, they'll have limited uh, applicant pool and quality candidates that are willing to take the chance to come to a city, uproot from maybe a different part of the country, especially during the last phase of an election year with no guarantee that the current mayor will retain his job. Right. I, I just don't see that as a, as a viable option. And That's I, an interesting point. Uh, very very astute point that you bring out there. I, I had not even considered that. With less than a year, who would want to take the job permanently? Right, and, and again, is it, the timing of it is such that, uh, from a political standpoint, as I see it, is I was the likely candidate that they could set, person that they could sacrifice to show that, oh, well, we're going to make some changes to move forward and accelerate the process to get through the issues that really have been dragging on for past two, three, two years, almost three years that I saw, um, and we're moving at a very slow pace, such as the reform process with the CASA, um, the crime problems itself, uh, and it just our, the, the reform process within the department. I, I just think it was just kind of a strategy that uh, maybe backfired for him as well because he didn't see, they didn't think this through, but definitely I was, I was not ready to retire at that time. Is this crime by design? Uh, could you suggest almost that this has become very political, that they didn't want to improve? I mean, obviously the big moves uh, nationally are decriminalization of various things. Uh, we have had the uh, bail reform, which happened a few years ago uh, prior to your time, which exacerbated the crime problem without our, our bail guys uh, able to track the criminals on the street. Uh, you know, we had the uh, other uh, reform, which uh, gave certain grades on whether or not uh, these uh, particular um, offenders had had to be uh, if, if there were a flight risk uh, those were, were big grading them on A, B, C and D if I'm not mistaken uh, the district attorney grading them like is that isn't that more by design and I know I've talked a lot to officer uh, an Albuquerque Police Officers Association Sean Willoughby who talk about uh, having to you know do the work over and over and over and over again and seeing the same criminals in this turnstile justice system well, right, and I was fortunate to be part of an ad hoc committee to, to research and, and try to improve the, uh, the system in order to hold criminals uh, for, for the you know, pretrial detention. Um, and so the part of the criminal justice system is broken in, in this particular district and probably maybe even statewide, um, but the, the matrix that you're, you're referring to obviously wasn't used properly. Um, I research showed that probably only 30% of the cases involving potential detention were actually approved and, and the district attorney actually only appealed a, force, a small portion of those for whatever reason, whether that was to have a higher conviction rate or whatever. As you mentioned, uh, our officers in our auto theft unit in particular is a good example, would tell me mm-hmm. they would arrest somebody in a stolen car on Monday and Wednesday arrest them again in another stolen car. And that process, because it was a property crime, wasn't didn't reach the priority level or the risk level needed to hold those people in detention. But even in cases involving serious offender, I know one in mind where uh, the UNM shooter uh, of that young man, the baseball player. Bashir. Yes. He had had two previous incidents. One with an AK-47 shooting at police officers. Right, in the one downtown where... Where he shot somebody. Shot somebody in that case. And it was uh, never prosecuted properly by the district attorney. That's correct. And so those incidents obviously occurred as well. And so it's, you can't just blame the police who are just out there uh, doing their job. And that's why I, I you know, support the police is because you know, they're put in those situations with those violent offenders 
and are often criticized for actions they take or lack of actions that really are outside of their control. We're speaking with uh, former uh, police chief of the Albuquerque Police Department, Chief Michael Geyer, and I want to talk about an editorial which was submitted uh, on the very same page that yours was, and we don't have a police chief right now. We have an interim one, uh, one with a, uh, I have to say, a very interesting background. Uh, he's looking for the permanent job, uh, looks to be uh, quite ambitious. But before we you know, get to that, maybe not today, but at a later date, I'd like to uh, very quickly just talk about this editorial, um, saying that we are going to be without leadership, and this isn't a, the type of job that's going to attract somebody. We just talked about the turnstile justice system, uh, the uh, district attorney that's here, the defund the police movement, uh, which has uh, been here, and the lack of respect, of, uh, plus the Department of Justice reforms. This is not a great place to be a police chief. No, it's it's not right now. It's unfortunate, and, and like, I think he said might... no self-respecting cop would take your job. Right, and I think Albuquerque is is no like no different than these other cities where chiefs have walked out or resigned or been forced out um, because of political motivations. I mean, in New York, gun crime and gun, uh, homicides went up when they caused issues of governmental changes to uh, affect the police ability to do their job and also would punish the police if they used even the slightest amount of excessive force where they could be charged criminally. Well, no respecting officer would want to go out and do their jobs, and that was part of the reason is their proactive activity uh, was reduced, which in, you know, definitely resulted in more crime. And that's what we're, I think we're seeing here is our hands were tied and we were... And your, your hands were tied specifically. Well, You weren't able to do your job. Did you know that this was a dead-end job? I mean, you're not a political guy. I've uh, talked with you a few times now, and I don't get any sense of any sort of uh, uh, political drive one way or the other. No, no, and I'm not... I don't have any political aspirations or motivations or connections to any particular party or whatnot. Uh, I'm just a cop, and that's where where my, you know, basically my background's been my whole life. Uh, my father was a cop. I understand the profession better, and I tried to improve. You know, I live in the city, and so, so your I, dad was a cop as well. Yes. Wow. Second. So this was definitely a uh, a vocation for you. You described your time there as a politician's aide. Help me understand that. Well, you know, when I came in as chief, I had high hopes to be able to make some of the changes that I saw over the years where APD was lacking and deficient. Um, we were a good department. We had a lot of, um, you know, different and good programs, and we have a lot of great officers out there. But, again, there's programs just that cause them to lose motivation and become jaded over the years because of their disenchantment with leadership. So my goal was to have a succession plan and develop future leaders and also a career development plan to help the officers advance and have something to look forward to their whole career so that they could retire with, with pride and knowing that they made a difference. We, we, as far as politics is, uh, I was constantly questioned and actually uh, directed by the mayor's office um, in terms of what they saw as priorities. And so my priorities, such as the gun violence reduction plan, which took a lot of work to get that underway, was put on the basically second nature from the mayor's side and obviously didn't give it the proper attention by now interim chief Medina. Well, that's interesting because the very first move prior after you're gone is to go ahead and talk about how they have this new technology, the shot spotter, and uh, brag about it, which was implemented while you were chief. They're literally taking credit for what you did. Well, and at the end and it of, wasn't a priority for them. Right, and at the end of nine months of when our plan was supposed to be in effect, to reduce gun violence by 15%, uh, 
um, what happened was we went out of control. We went much higher than last year's, uh, you know, reports of gun violence. And, and, you know, I think part of the reason was is because it wasn't given the attention. And whether it was the mayor uh, not seeking or approving the grants that were offered, I mean, close to $10 million and actually more. What, what grants were offered that we didn't get it, that, that we didn't get? Do you, you, you mean to tell me that Tim Keller, Mayor Tim Keller, turned away $10 million? Well, I mean, as was well publicized, Operation Relentless Pursuit last, you know, November, December, um, off was going to give us $9.7 million. Previous to that, and this was part of a press conference that right. we had um, back, back then, but previous to that we had a, a press conference at the crime lab where we out, you know, showed and had a big demonstration of the weapons we recovered and posters of some of the processes for the Nibens program. But we talked, that we, we, I worked with the director of the, um, actually the Southwest Regional uh, ATF, the Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, and they got us the ability through Washington, D.C. to get a grant for the Crime Gun Intelligence Center. We would be the focus of this metro area, and they were going to give us, a, it was about a million-dollar grant. That grant is still yet to be designed. It's, it's in that process of the, whether the, we have issues with Sanctuary City or you know, those kind of concerns um, in terms of violating uh, provisions of that grant, which were made clear in Operation Relentless Pursuit and then uh, legend afterwards by the U.S. Attorney that that wasn't the case. This wasn't about protest, nor was it about immigration issues. It was strictly about reducing crime. So we still haven't signed those grants. And, and as when I left, there was some other grants dealing with, um, you know, the sexual crimes investigations that we still hadn't signed because of similar type concerns. So I, I think that that kind of delay and, and obviously... So we continue to be delayed on all these. The money continues to be there, and we haven't complied with it so we can read that, receive that federal money. Yet we are receiving uh, you know, Operation Relentless Pursuit, Operation Legend. These are uh, real impacts by the uh, federal government, the federal authorities uh, coming in uh, to uh, clean up crime on the streets of Albuquerque because we're choosing politically. Tim Keller is choosing, Zarita Nair is choosing not to do so. Well, and they have... You have to sign it. He did approve it recently, and he, he did blame it on the president uh, for the delay. What was the blame to the president? Um, it was back, if you may remember, in July when all yeah. the rhetoric with uh, Senator Heinrich and, and uh, Sheriff Gonzalez. Going the playing to, politics with our crime rate here because we didn't want him to get the credit. And this was, of course, the Portland. Hey, they're picking up people in unmarked vans and throwing them in buses and shipping them away. Right. He, he, even though he knew otherwise, and both the U.S. attorney and myself had explained that to him, uh, they chose to go with that that rhetoric. Um, you know that there was uh, stormtroopers coming in, and yeah. and obviously it had had nothing to do with that. Actually, they were here already. Just we weren't getting that's ABQ died. Uh, you know, for forty new officers, and then we would backfill their positions, the ones that came in to help us temporarily from the federal government with our task force officers so we would have that internal control as we move forward in the future to sustain this effort. And it just seemed like I was so frustrated that for nine months I, the city attorneys would go in as that, well, if you signed it, somebody's going to go to prison, the mayor will go to prison, you'll go to prison uh, for violating, with, which I was reassured. As a matter of fact, I wasn't... You were told that you would go to prison if you signed off on this. Right. And as a matter how, of fact, how, how does that even make sense? Well, it, it was some... You know, lying in the in the uh, provisions of the contract or whatever that we were about to sign, that they were worried that if we signed that, it violated something with our city ordinance dealing with immigration, 
and we, if we weren't in compliance with the, the federal uh, statute, that we would be prosecuted somehow. It also was interesting because the U.S. attorney had invited me to go to D.C. as well with Manny Gonzalez because of my work to support their efforts. And that's the uh, attorney, Anderson. John Anderson, yes. And then, the one who wrote a 14-page scathing uh, report against Mayor Tim Keller. Yes, he, he, he body slammed the mayor pretty hard there. And, and But it, he had to tell me that they denied it because of the fact that we had not yet signed it. Whereas we were part of that all along. They had had agents here since April after COVID started the fade where they were working with us, but just without the funding. So, I mean, it was almost like a moot point in my regards is take the money, for God's sakes. We, we have issues now with, you know, businesses going bankrupt and the economy possibly, you know, tanking as we move forward. And yet here's here's a big amount of cash that could be available to help keep up from uh, getting shot or saving the lives of individuals. So truly crime by design, because we're choosing uh, to be inactive, or because Mayor Tim Keller and uh, uh, Chief uh, Administrative Officer uh, Sarita Nair is uh, choosing to ignore that and do the right thing because they are playing politics. That seems very clear to me. Yes, I, I think they had political you know, intentions that actually sacrificed public safety. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. Let's go back. So it seems like there's politics outside blue cities, blue states, uh, choosing to go on that line. Uh, but there's also seems to be some politics uh, on the inside uh, with what's happening, the politicization of, of, of the police department uh, of, it, uh, of itself. I'll kind of just sort of like leave it open. This becomes a dead-end job. And as uh, this uh, man, I don't know who he is, Dave Cooley uh, decided to go ahead and write into the Albuquerque Journal um, you know, this is something where you didn't have control of your own police force. Right. I mean, it's if you look at it uh, from today's perspective, in years past, the chief that was independent and autonomous to some extent. Obviously, you still answer to the city and you're accountable to the city administration, but you were able to do your own press conferences. You were able to design your own planning. But because most of us have that expertise or we're subject matters in that regard, not politicians, to, to do just that. And so tell me about the process for a press conference. Say something happened. Uh, how did you have to have how to go about a uh, press conference? Oftentimes we hear from uh, Gilbert Gallegos uh, or the guy who had uh, umpteen hours that he worked every single week that was pretty pressed uh, pretty hard. Uh, tell me how you'd, you'd go about it. Well, initially I was, you know, it was not as clearly defined as it became in the months to follow, but... I tried to do one, for example, following a, an incident of child abuse resulting in a death right outside our station. As most chiefs will do, they'll talk immediately uh, following an incident, not with all the information, but enough to give the media and the public some understanding of, of what happened. And the one of the members of the mayor's comms team was sitting or standing outside in the street listening, and I saw her walk off to the mayor's office as the press conference answered or ended. And I didn't even get upstairs before I was told by my aide, uh, executive assistant, that the mayor's office wanted to see me. And actually, I was called over there to say, why did you say this? You shouldn't have said this. Um, was that directly from Tim Keller? Yes, yes. And and so that, from that point on, uh, basically, they were orchestrated. Uh, there was a lot of preparation going into that, including the order of the speakers and what was to be said and what was scripted in those press conferences, as was other statements that were made in press releases that sometimes I never made and some were okay and some, as you saw in one case, it was a, a tweet that went out that just 
totally was against all my my beliefs and and really affected. You're speaking me. of the Kenosha, Wisconsin Twitter uh, um, incident, correct? Yes, as well as other times where I had to try to change statements that were being made written for me um, before they with very little time before they had hit the deadline. Do you even tweet? I do not. I I don't even know how to start to do that. Um, that's I, an, that's uh, pretty incredible. Yeah, so I, no doubt there's pol- politics going on on the, on the inside. Mayor Tim Keller didn't like what you said uh, going out, reprimanded you. It doesn't seem like there's a whole lot of transparency for the public. No, I, I would agree with that. Is I, I think to some extent the public, I think, sees, saw that. I think there's a, a certain amount of, um, you know, where they see through the the smoke and mirrors type approach to a press conference or to a, a release from politicians that, you know, they, there's never the whole story and nor do they always give the complete answer. Um, it's all very, like I said, it's, it's kind of a planned uh, production in some, some cases these days, which uh, to me, I mean, sometimes you talk off the cuff and you may, sure. not, you may not, you may make the mistake and eat your words later, but um, I'd rather be honest and transparent. I mean, actually what we did do that, you know, that really worked outside of, of, their um, purposes was I promised transparency in officer-involved shootings from the onset. And we developed a plan to, uh, the process was that we'd give the initial statement as much as we could at the scene. Once we had enough information to do a preliminary uh, press conference, we brought people in the media to our station. We gave a, a PowerPoint presentation, walking them through the incident, including watching videos, uh, segments, listening to audio tapes from 911, uh, seeing the scene, seeing evidence from the scene, and, and hearing and you know, understanding how it applied to our policy and to our, our protocols. And we gave that, and, and pretty much the press accepted that, and they would wait. And then afterwards, rather than have them require to IPRA the records, is we did a link to release all the videos. Um, obviously, we could only show so much in about a half hour, 45 minutes. But we would release all the videos for their review, and we gave them the story, and um, and I held my word right from the first shooting we had in January of 2017 to the last one we had a few months ago. Um, we did that for every case. And that was similar to what other departments had, had shown me was an effective way to get the message out without trying to give the appearance that we were trying to hide anything. Um, obviously, those investigations, some are still underway, so there's certain limited information we can provide, and some we just don't have. But we were straightforward and honest, and I think... That approach, I think, was simple enough that the media trusted us to, to even toward the end, they asked very few questions. Well, they're speaking with uh, former police chief uh, Michael Guy of the Albuquerque uh, Police Department. The hatchet job in the, uh, hatchet job in the politicalization of the, your department, I think, continues despite your best attempts to be uh, transparent, forthright, and the officer-involved shootings and uh, being forthright with them. You were told what to say, how to say it, and uh, when to talk. And it uh, looks like uh, you were... You're, you're, I'm getting, you know, obviously this, this very, very clear picture of there's something uh, uh, rotten <laughs> happening uh, within the Albuquerque Police Department. And there was a reply by the deputy chiefs, uh, and I think maybe this is uh, maybe set for another time, but they replied immediately to you um, or were anticipating uh, this very thing and said that you left the department, uh, you left them hanging, and you never had their back. Well, that's interesting because many of the claims in there, uh, some of the deputy chiefs weren't even here for some of the programs that they mentioned at the There's time. There's five of them, Smathers, Olvera, Garcia, Gonzalez, and Griego. Right, and, and Griego came in about a year, year and a half after we started uh, as deputy chief. Smathers 
short time after that. So they weren't there for some of the initial things that they alleged to be referring to. I honestly don't believe they wrote this article. Again, this is one of the scripted uh, productions out of the mayor's office. Um, another deputy chief uh, was was uh, Eric Garcia, who who obviously was very much embedded in the Casa project and had little to do with crime fighting. You know, by the nature of his job, crime fighting or some of these other programs that they mentioned. And the fourth one, uh, Donnie Alvera, just came on board three weeks ago. So I can't see how those people can offer commentary on some. So Alvera has the, the, uh, only been there less than a month. Exactly. Yes. Wow. So Smathers uh, came in after Griego. Griego came in a year and a half ago. So really, the only person who's there is Gonzalez and Garcia. Right, and they were most. You know, their role is obviously more prevalent because they had the biggest bureaus in the department, the Field Services and Investigation Bureau. Um, and I, I really, I don't see, at least in the terms of D.C. Gonzalez, that he would have said anything of this nature. I, I think it was kind of a, as I saw when I left and walked out off the, the uh, podium the day I, I announced that I was leaving, that it was within minutes that the, the mayor stepped up to the podium and addressed the media with the new plan that was going in place and the rationale, and it wasn't, he got a little bit attacked, but when he left, it wasn't, but 20 to 30 minutes later, he had all four of the deputy chiefs in a meeting to discuss that plan, and in the following weeks, while I was a lame duck for two weeks, um, none of those people spoke to me on my own floor. Not yeah. one offer. Well, obviously, they're worried about you know their own necks at that, part, uh, at that point as well. Uh, I would imagine uh, everyone's worried about a job, getting payment, uh, making sure that they can retire. Uh, they don't want to get in the middle of, of what, what seemed to be. I mean, that's the way Tim Keller ha- handled you. I imagine that's the way he would handle uh, the brass as well. I want to kind of just cut to some of the things that they say, just in the case of uh, of time here. And I think we can maybe, hopefully, you might be willing to come on another time and, and talk more in depth about this, because there seems to be a lot to unpack here and really sort of wrap ourselves around. But um, some almost liability uh, accusations, libel uh, accusations, that you were obsessed over rumors spread by retired officers, lawyers who make a living by suing the city, small circle of friends that convinced him to trust his own command staff and administrators. Like, that's very not professional. Uh, I don't know if it could be any more unprofessional, and that's the uh, accusation that's being uh, lobbied in uh, leverage in a, uh, a public forum through our, our largest newspaper here in the city of Albuquerque. Um, that isn't focused on crime fighting. That isn't focused on on bringing more officers in. And in fact, uh, Chief Geyer, I think you've been responsible uh, under your uh, leadership for hiring the most number of officers ever in a one-year period in the city of Albuquerque. Yes, that's true. And I mean, and you're right. Those statements are out of character. Um, first of all, the rumors. Uh, for the most part, officers that did come forward and try to convince me that to watch my back in the last three or four months of the job, all all related, and many people on their exit interviews told me to beware of Deputy Chief Medina, that he had made it clear. That's the new interim chief. Yes. Okay. He had made it clear that um, that he was going to be the next chief and that I wasn't going to be around past much past. He was telling other people that? Yes. Prior to you notif- being notified? Yes. and then in- Why, How could he have that type of stroke or knowledge or insight? Well, I mean, that's that's the question of the day, I guess, because there was about a three-month... Well, it's very political insight. Right. And if you go back even a year, those rumors people were, were refer- asking me, uh, I was supposed to be leaving in the end of 19, was the rumor. I had to send out a citywide email 
refuting that, and officers came to you me. You got hired permanently in the spring of 18. Yeah, and they were, they were, he was already trying to say that I wasn't going to be around, to the fact that his, some of his friends were telling other people, be careful who you form your alliance with because the chief's not going to be around for a long time. That was in 19. In the summer, about six weeks out before I did get promoted or demoted or left, left I'm sorry, um, the union president, Sean Willoughby, had told uh, one of the lieutenants in the department, if you want anything from Geyer, you get, better get it now because he's not going to be here that much longer. And that was probably in early August, late July, sometime in that time frame. So, and Medina himself came to me in the last few weeks and said, well, I think you're going to be fired, I'm going to be made interim chief, and they're going to do a national search. And he said that at least three or four times to me. Wow. So there was definitely some advance notice, and, and the whole process of way, the way that the mayor approached me, um, kind of out of the blue, especially following uh, a discussion I had with Sarita Nair uh, the, the Friday before Monday when uh, the mayor and I had our meeting, where I told her that I intended to move uh, Medina out of the Field Services Bureau because of his uh, insubordination with the gun crime and some other a- aspects of the job, including not following directions at some of those protests. Um, she went into a, a fury, so to speak, and saying that you can't do that. They're the mayor's appointee. And I reminded her that I said, wow. I reminded her of the rhetoric that was going on as well, who was really running the department. Right. And I was left hanging at that point. There was no uh, final disposition to that issue with Medina when we when she left the room that morning. Well, Chief Guy, we're out of time, but I got to have you uh, back. There's a lot of uh, more I'd like to talk about. Uh, I don't know when I'd like to have you back, but uh, preferably as soon as possible. Um, and I think we sort of pick it up right there why there was such an interest in your job, what they were trying to do, why so many other people knew about you leaving the department prior to you ever even knowing about the uh, about this type of stuff. Some internal politics that, that really is making it, it rotten. I want to uh, commend you on a great job uh, while you were police chief. Uh, I, there were some questionable things that I uh, was really interested in terms of the homicide. Uh, certainly the numbers are trying to keeping it down. I'm glad you located that technology, but I'd like to have you back in, uh, sir, if uh, that'd be okay by you. That would be. I appreciate that. All right. Uh, Former Chief Michael Geyer will be here, and uh, we'll learn a little bit more about what happened. We'll go straight into Bill O'Reilly this evening here at 645, and I appreciate him taking the time. We're going to put this uh, up for your uh, consuming uh, right directly on our podcast at rockoftalk.com. See you bright and early, 4 p.m. tomorrow.